are listening to the Elephant in the Room podcast with your host, Sutta Singh. Each week, we will bring you a diverse range of inspiring speakers on issues of inequality and inequity. You will hear stories about fairness, justice, belonging, and about best practice for creating a more inclusive workplace. So, if you are an individual or leader interested in a fairer, equitable, compassionate society and workplace, this podcast is for you. My guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast this week is Sarabjit Kohli, Sustainability Practice Lead at STEER, a global infrastructure consulting firm focusing on zero emission vehicles, along with supporting infrastructure and net zero pathways. Good morning, Sarabjit. Wonderful to have you on the Elephant in the Room podcast today. Good morning, Sudha. Lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Okay, let's start with a quick introduction. So, who are you and what do you do? I'm Sarabjit Kohli. I'm the Sustainability Practice Lead at Steer Group. I've been in the business for 15 years, been in the industry for 20 years, but the sustainability role is a new role. So, I'm looking to expand and establish our offer in all the markets that Steer Group operates. We are an infrastructure consulting firm who's been in this practice for over 40 years and we've supported clients both public and private sector around the globe, essentially helping them invest in infrastructure, transport infrastructure specifically. But as we move forward in the world, the challenges that are being faced by our clients, by our economies, by our communities are getting even more complex. And what we are realizing is that it isn't just an infrastructure solution that can answer the questions and the challenges that are being posed on its own. We need to think more widely, more sustainably and linking up different aspects of not just transport, but transport and energy, transport and energy and finance, and all these solutions require fresh thinking. So that's what really our offer is, is to bring our existing expertise. And I'm trying to link up our capabilities with our clients' requirements to solve some of the most complex challenges that our clients and communities face. So I understand from reading on your website and some research that 2022 was a milestone year for STEER. You became a carbon neutral organization. What does that mean? No, it's really interesting. And I think, again, transition is part of essentially all organizations' ethos to evolve and grow and kind of almost keep up with what the society demands of us. So I think carbon neutrality and achieving net zero by 2025 was an objective that our organization decided that it wants to meet and achieve. And we went through quite a rigorous process of, first of all, understanding what is our carbon footprint. And this was quite an extensive exercise around the globe. We went to each of our offices to understand what's our travel patterns, what's our supply chain patterns, what is our scope one, scope two, scope three emissions, as you call it, getting it quantified to the level and converted it to emission standards using global standards and getting it independently audited, reviewed almost to check that what we are done in terms of the efforts we are making in terms of improving our supply chain carbon footprint, improving our own footprint. And one of the biggest impacts we realized was our office space, the buildings that we inhabit as a business are one of the largest impacts that we have on emissions and our largest office in London, where we moved into a new space, is one of the most green building at Rushwood Street, which had a huge impact. So as part of the calculation, we found that moving into a green, sustainable building meant that our footprint reduced significantly, and that helped us achieve essentially carbon neutrality in 2022. And it's a process we are continuing to monitor our travel, continuing to monitor our supply chains, continue to monitor and estimate our greenhouse gas emissions, and then 
where required even kind of take actions to source responsibly to travel almost more responsibly and carry out employee surveys and supplier surveys to understand that what we are estimating as our carbon footprint is independently verified and more interestingly i think even things like very simple having a vegetarian day or a vegan day in the office where all colleagues come together and eat it's also to make it the social thing not just an obligation on yeah. an organization but also something fun to do so it's not all pain as it is being painted that achieving net zero or becoming carbon neutral is all pain it's also a lot of fun as well yeah it's very interesting to hear about the journey from you because the scope 1 scope 2 a lot of organizations are doing but scope 3 they don't want to get into that because that is going to be the biggest footprint for most organizations and of course it's interesting to hear that the building where your biggest office was was the biggest culprit in this and you moved to a greener more sustainable building and this has had an impact on reducing your carbon footprint so it's very interesting to hear that and i love this thought about the narrative around how we move forward the narrative is about oh we have to make sacrifices or oh, we have to do these things which are like very painful so it's not all about pain it is also about ensuring that it moves beyond tick box to where we start embracing it as something as a part of our lives so that's a great process you mentioned just now that steer has set a target to be net zero by 2025 and near zero carbon by 2030 through less than 50% offsetting now offsetting it used to happen a lot i think in the 90s and 2000s and even the last decade but slowly we are realizing that offsetting probably isn't the best way to go about on this journey but what does this entail when you say that you want to be net zero carbon by 2025 what steps does tier have to take to get there really a good question and again i think what i mentioned earlier some of this is in our nature itself we are heavily an organization that has promoted sustainable choices in form of almost ensuring that majority of our travel and i think technology and pandemic has helped us has been on sustainable modes as much as possible wherever we have opportunities available our internal policies are aligned so it isn't just sort of a strap line on the top which says we will be carbon neutral our behaviors need to respond to that requirement and behaviors what we find is often the messaging that comes from the yeah. top flows all the way down to each and every employee and it kind of gets embedded in the organization's dna and that's where we've always found the processes and policies that we put into place should be there to support our businesses to grow because we are not about reducing our businesses impact just because we want to lose our growth trajectory we also want to grow in this market so it's fundamentally about decoupling our growth with our carbon impact growth so it's really reducing the impact of carbon generated per dollar per pound per inr that we earn that's fundamentally the ethos with which we work with and within that then there are quite simple things that you can do around providing bike share schemes or providing incentives for people to make more sustainable choices by giving access to loans for monthly or annual passes and i know that's kind of a trend that used to exist where people used to go in the office every week and every month and therefore having a bulk discount on their subscription was quite a heavy ask on their paycheck so we had schemes we still have 
schemes available for providing loans for such facilities. But obviously, we are now in a new world of hybrid impact. So that's where then the choices to travel, even for business purposes, as business travel comes back, we are starting to kind of promote more sustainable choices in our policies. Each office now has a local environmental plan in place where they are, first of all, creating a baseline of understanding what the energy consumption is, what the supply chain is, how are we making choices in terms of any shared travel that we are doing? Do we have choices available in form of, let's say, using zero emission vehicles for our travel if possible? So it's down to that kind of making sure at a bottom-up level that this thinking of being aware of your footprint and as the business grows and as our organization grows and starts offering more solutions to more clients, we are not following through any of those attributes which would result in us going backwards. We want to move forwards in terms of our growth, but backwards in terms of our carbon footprint. And that's the solution that we keep finding in all the choices, all the decisions we make. So fundamentally, what we want to do is to keep going along that path, which has led us to carbon neutrality. Last year, we want to move forward with those initiatives to get to net zero and then you know go to almost sub-zero by 2030. We want to be ambitious in this space and we think we can achieve it. So very different from what the UK government has in mind at this point. <laughs> Not ambitious yeah. at all and probably have taken steps that are going to probably impact how countries are making their own decisions on fossil fuel and oil and gas licenses, etc. I kind of take a step back almost from some of the noises you hear on a weekly basis. And if you want to kind of separate the signal from the noise, the signal is very clear. And the decisions that have been taken by the voters, by the people who put governments in place are very, very clear. That messaging, I don't think is changing. As a society, as individuals, we have made that decision. I don't think that direction of travel is changing. How we get there will be different for each economy. I was in California three weeks ago and the direction of travel there is just phenomenal in terms of the amount of money that is being put in place where the government's mouth is. And exactly the same challenges that there are elections happening in all the three biggest markets we operate in, in the US, in the UK, and India next year. So the direction of travel of central government, federal government policy could evolve and change in all these geographies. But the messaging on the ground, at least in that part of the world, in California, was very clear that this is happening irrespective of the political direction of travel, because this is now embedded in their laws. And I think in some sense, California stands out in North America, particularly given the amount of disruption it has faced in its own wildfires and, you know, uh, adverse weather events, extreme droughts. They've had a good rain this year, so it's very lush and green. So would definitely recommend anybody to go and travel there at this point (laughs) of the time. But I think the consequences of not taking action is significant. And people have realized that. And I don't think that choice is changing. Even in an economy as India, which is committing to being net zero in 2070, I think the action on the ground is phenomenal, is what we are seeing. So I think that direction of travel is not changing. We believe that and that's a decision that people, individuals have taken. agree with you on the broader line of thinking. So you are the sustainability practice lead at Steer. What services are you offering to clients? And are there examples of how you're thinking of integrating the sustainability offering with whatever work you are doing on transportation or any other area? Sure. 
Absolutely. And I think it's a real culmination and we are learning as we go as well in this experience because nobody has solved this problem fully. So the key services that Stair offers is zero emission vehicles and this covers electric buses, electric two-wheelers, hydrogen buses. So anything that reduces emissions while providing mobility is where kind of our core offer is. And this goes into even looking at charging infrastructure that supports or refueling infrastructure that supports deployment of the zero emission vehicles. Because that's the other thing we are finding these days that it's not just the vehicles that need to be produced and procured and deployed. It's the supporting charging infra, supporting refueling infra that needs to come in. And that's where often the crux of the problem lies, not so much in the kit that comes out of a manufacturing unit from an OEM, but it's what happens once it is out there. How does it get service? How does it get replaced? How does it get charged? How does it get refueled? All of those aspects we look into. And in all of this, in all of this money matters, who's funding it, who's financing it, the current upfront costs of these vehicles is still significantly higher than the counterparts that are available and corresponding refueling, recharging infrastructure doesn't quite exist even in quite advanced part of the world where perhaps let's say again I take example of California where Tesla is like almost what used to be the most sold car whatever that was Ford T10 110 number is as visible as that and has a widespread charging network even there the challenges are being faced in terms of when they are trying to migrate their buses and their trucks which also have a significant GHG impact. But then when we turn this around into a world where uh, the electric vehicle revolution in India and South Asia is moving in a very different direction where we are seeing two-wheelers and three-wheelers being electrified and that being electrified in masses. And that's where TCO, the total cost of ownership advantage, already exists and will exist in case of buses and cars fairly soon as the manufacturing base expands and the volumes increase. So it's looking at all of this ecosystem where our clients face challenges or we see challenges that governments or funding institutions. And what is very interesting is that almost every fund, every investor who we speak to now has a climate transition fund in place and has millions committed in participating in this transition. And we are there to help them as we have helped them in case of investments in airports and toll roads and metro projects and all other modes. We are there to help them in this climate transition activity. So that's kind of one strand of our work. We also have a very interesting and economic development unit, both in the form of fourth economy in North America and form of steer economic development team here in the UK. And they have a very clear net zero strategy offer, which looks at the economic impact of these things, because this isn't just about technology and investment taking place. This is about communities being impacted. This is about individual livelihoods, individual skills being impacted. And then wider ecosystem, how does this net zero strategy impact on the supply chain because as what we touched on earlier it's not just what you do it's what you do in the supply chain that you exist of the service that you're providing or the products that you are supplying that matters and it has a different impact depending on what level of carbon intensity you are offering so both fourth economy in the us and steer economic development in the uk have this strategic offer of net zero evaluation both coming up with a strategy for net zero transition for local economies but also then to look at the community impact the skill impact and what support those communities need to enable that transition to take place. And we also then go in and look at the evaluation of how they are transitioning, what the challenges are, what can public sector agencies do to support that transition. And then the third very interesting offer that we've recently added in form of our acquisition of Amberside Advisors is our capability in decentralized energy. So like I said, our buildings contribute to a lot of our emissions. And what we are finding is that district energy, district cooling, district heating, decentralized energy is a big agenda on most 
most investors and most public agencies as a way to decarbonize our carbon impact, whereby essentially replacing that whole individual old boilers or old heating equipments or old air conditioners that exist in individual homes and are quite inefficient with a centralized heating and cooling unit, which can be managed at a district level and heating and cooling. And for that matter, even electricity charging can be provided using a much more sustainable hydrogen-fueled heat pumps or energy from waste being generated and used as heating and cooling is something we got a quite a distinct offer in terms of understanding how commercially it can work, how can energy companies come in and structure it along with the local authority, or how can local authority tender it? So it's all these local area energy plans that we are now starting to support that are going to become mandatory over the next two, three years here in the UK and similar applications of this where investors have worked with universities, with hospital chains, with individual institutes to essentially take over and run their heating and cooling systems as a centralized managed agency. So these are the three distinct offers that STEER offers. And the idea is often these things start interacting with each other. So part of my role is also to link our, let's say, zero emission vehicle infrastructure charging offer with the decentralized energy offer, because often the client's are asking the same question. They are the same clients. So that's been very, very interesting. Yeah, sounds absolutely fascinating. And I think what I find very interesting is what you said, that money matters. Who's putting the money and where is it all going? And the second thing is about a just transition, because while we are moving towards net zero, we cannot leave the communities behind. We cannot just take some people along with us and leave the people who are going to be largely impacted, maybe because they don't have the skills or the abilities or the financial bandwidth to transition. So it's interesting to hear how you're planning to embrace that within the work that you're doing, within the offering. And it is not as an afterthought or something that you think about in a silo post facto. No, we can't. We just can't. I think that silo thinking is, again, a think of the past because every action we do has an impact on somebody else. And therefore, I think in some sense, that's also an opportunity for us to be able to link up our offers and talk from the same hymn sheet, which can often be a challenge given how diverse our organization is, even though we are quite small, but we are still spread into 20 odd offices in 15 odd countries. Getting people on the same page often can be a challenge, but it's also exciting at the same time when you achieve that challenge. Yeah. So moving on, how critical is equity and inclusion at the start of the design process? We've touched some parts of it and considering how critical the projects one would assume that it would be less of an afterthought, but we still see new builds, new transportation solutions, new roads, which are not inclusive as yet. This is 2023. So how do we do that? And what is the way to ensure that all this inclusion happens right when the concept comes into place? And I think you touch upon quite a few set of relevant points there. And I think what we are finding is that we are very rapidly moving away from what I would call was a supply side world to what we are now going to land in a demand side world. And I think all the technological innovations that have happened over the past 20 years and are about to happen in the coming 20 years will just force that upon us. And you look at Industrial Revolution 4.0 or you look at AI revolution that is coming or you look at all the way examples of 3D printing to even mobile phone packages, which fundamentally have changed the way we have started consuming our information or consuming even the products that are offered to us. I think infrastructure is probably much further behind in that thinking. 
in terms of working almost from a user perspective. And because I see it from, I'm a civil engineer by training and an economist by specialization. And I've seen it in so many fields that be it transport, be it roads, airports, metros, energy provision. The thinking is very much from a supply perspective. That here is a piece of metro and I'll build it and I'll just put elevators around my station and let people get in and out. I've done my bet. I only care about my metro and that's it. What people forget, and we see these examples all over the world, is how do people get to it? Is it safe for them to wait at night when they have got two kids waiting and a luggage next to them? What if there is rainfall and it is a diluge situation where you can't even forget about running your metro? You can't even get people onto the station or you've got too many people on the station and they're pushing each other onto the platforms. So that thinking is often a retrofit that happens. And I think that's fundamentally got to change and is changing, which is the good news here. And this is the example, again, which we are starting to see. And what is fascinating in all of this is that the more you turn towards user or consumer-based thinking, which is the demand-side thinking, the more value you generate out of the asset is what we are finding. And the classic example is, if you go and look at the station boxes that Delhi Metro had in its first line, yellow or blue line, and compare that against the station boxes they are building for the new lines, or even go to Bangalore and look at the size of the station box, what they've realized is that station is a safe space for people to be in. It's lighted, it's got people in it, and therefore people are willing to wait and spend money. So what makes sense for users makes sense for stations. And so there are now, I think ADB is funding about $400 million on the airport line to Bangalore just to look at the transit-oriented development aspect. And they're funding part of that project, but key part of that investment is to look at how can value be generated of having better stations, more accessible, connected to developments, safer for people to use. So we've been working with the UK government in supporting that thinking in Bangalore with the Directorate of Urban Land Transport in exactly answering that question. How equitable is your station for all types of users? So before that interchange is built, before you start deploying infrastructure, and it goes beyond just providing a feeding room for pregnant women or mom with younger kids. It's about sort of almost starting to think that women treat their travel very differently compared to men. And so what do you do to make them feel safe? What do you do to make them feel that they can access public transport? And I think what is quite fascinating is that almost a lot of that thinking where we think of India as an emerging economy and a developing world translates very well when you go and sit on an LA metro. Because even in LA, the challenges are different. And that's where the equity inclusion thinking becomes really, really important, even in that part of the world, because the post-pandemic K-shaped recovery is evident all over the world. The amount Again, I bring my California trip into the conversation. The number of homeless people I saw in LA downtown streets is just unbelievable. And I've heard of horror stories of what's happening in San Francisco, that people are scared to go into downtowns after 6 p.m. And that to me is shocking. And this is the most developed economy in the world with the highest income and highest growth prospects. And we are in the most cutting edge part of the world. And even in that city, which kind of showcases how much equity now becomes essential that if you want to convince your users to come into public transport and use the facility that you're investing in, you need to make them feel safe. You need to make them feel almost that it is okay for you to drop your car and choose public transport. So I think that thinking 
and good part is cities and agencies are taking notice and making decisions and are actually moving forward in embedding that thinking almost not just as a tick box but yeah. as a design constraint that in your design show to me how you have proven and it needs to be reviewed all the way through so it isn't just like an extra report that is done at the end of a project development uh, process but it is embedded in the thinking just as cost and revenues are important equity is starting to take prominence in those conversations is what we are finding mm, that's very interesting to know and this has to be the way forward we can't continue to perpetuate the old ways of working with so much of like you said for stations in india i mean they can be safe havens for all sorts of people especially for marginalized and women especially but it can't be just at the point of the station how do you get to that station and you have to have the thinking in place so sarjit is there a mechanism to embed equity and inclusion because of regulatory or donor requirements you spoke about the adb project what does it look like in practice are there any examples absolutely multiple and so for a long long time we were always evaluating projects from the form of their equity return or their economic returns so irrs and eirrs were the key metric that used to be looked at and i was speaking to this friend of mine who works with asian development bank and they've been funding the indian government's rural road development scheme pradhan mantri gram sadak yojana pmgsy and it was very fascinating this friend of mine would travel to edges of odisha jharkhand and assam and would come back and tell me and both of us grew up together working as professionals very much in that world of economic return and financial return and saying when we invest in such projects we are not looking at economic return in the purest time saving accident saving which is kind of what fuel savings which is what the traditional approach was we are starting to look at how it is actually impacting the number of eggs a poultry farmer was able to get to the market every season and how does our road investment change that the number of prenatal emergencies that were being attended to where the central health facility was now able to serve or the village dwellers were able to access it much more quickly compared to when the road didn't exist that's the metric in which we assess the value of our investments and measuring that and quantifying that is what convinces our shareholders around the world to put money into these projects so it's very very interesting that this isn't just any more a uh, thing that is nice to do these are measurable quantifiable impacts and when i take this example to some of the largest investors around the world they are fascinated by such example and, and this is where essentially again some of the thinking that is starting to come through is that people are willing to let go of some of their economic returns they don't want 9% irr or 15% irr they are okay to have a 6% irr as long as you can firmly convince them that that loss or that delta gain or loss in their irr is resulting in a positive social impact which is more than a tick box so that's the movement that we are starting to see and yes there have been some of these themes around anti esg and esg is just a greenwashing and all of that story that we are hearing but again i think the direction is set the travel of uh, this movement is there where you can confidently define and quantify these impacts there will be money made and money invested in hmm that's like very heartening to know so you already said that the direct action of travel has been decided now and it's defined but as an expert what are the biggest challenges 
that are going to have an impact in how we design our cities, urban spaces and transportation. I guess, again, it would be from the people who are financing or funding on what return they'd like from it. You've given some examples, but with the backlash, like you mentioned on ESG, is this going to continue to be a problem or do you see that it's going to reduce slowly? So I think some of this, I feel, is that the reaction that you get when suddenly a big spotlight is thrown at you and you suddenly are kind of in the middle of a road and you can't move, even though you see this massive truck coming over to hit you. That's it. Thank you. Part of this is some of that, that you just think this is too overwhelming. It is too big and it's going to come and hit you and you don't know what to do. And I totally agree with that because it can be very overwhelming. It can be very defeatist almost, no matter what I do, nothing is going to change. And all the efforts we make are just there. We can just put our head in the sand and carry on as we are doing and not bother about the next generation or the next year or the next decade. So I see some of what we are seeing in terms of backlash is to do with that. And there is also some element of lack of understanding, lack of knowledge that end up manifesting itself into, is this all just a greenwash? Am I just being hassled because I can't prove this and somebody's trying to make money of me because I can't prove this and if I give them money, it will be proven. I think that is natural because the transition that we are being asked to do or that is required is so huge that it requires some fundamental shift in our way of thinking, way of evaluating our choices. And it is difficult to make that transition, as you can imagine. If you've been set in certain ways for the past 50, 60, 70, 100 years, suddenly to ask you to change your criteria of evaluation is very difficult. But then at the same point, we are also at that cusp of a generational change where we know for sure that the generations that are coming through, they are not going to be as well off as the generations before. And whether it is the baby boomers or the millennials or the Gen Zs, incrementally we are seeing that trust in the system being eroded. And there are lots and lots of evidence out there to the extent that the whole trend of life flat in China or the lazy girl jobs in the UK, these are just evidence of the, the next generation telling us that they don't believe in the choices that have been made so far. So you and me will not be living the world which we are talking about. They will be living the world and they will be driving the choices. And therefore, I think unless and until we start listening to that change and responding to it. This backlash is one year and next year things change again. But again, I do believe that generational shift is happening and has happened to much extent, which will drive the decision making, the criteria that we bring in into our choices of what type of infra we want. How do we choose to support some of the less fortunate in the world is all going to be driven by the choices that people in these next coming generation are going to make. Yes, that is very, very true. It's not about us. It is about the future. It's about listening to what people are already saying. And they've said it. I think they've made the choices and they're only going to move in one direction. So I think unless we listen, it's going to be not a very sustainable journey. I think in some sense, we do need that generation on our side because we do need them to support our pensions because our pensions are going to evaporate if they don't join the workforce, if they don't generate value. So there is benefit in us as well in supporting their choices, in supporting the thinking, at least even if we are not able to give them the economic stature, at least giving them the ecological future that they deserve better than what we would have if we had gone down the path that we were of burning everything that is available for our gain, for our personal benefit, which is not what the next generation is asking for. True, true. Very true. 
So, Sarabjit, what is the elephant in the room for your industry? The deep lack of diversity. How do you expect to solve some of the biggest problems for your stakeholders, which are around equity and inclusion, if the industry itself is not very representative? So, I think we've got to move away from know-it-all to a very different regime of learn-it-all. I think that's fundamentally where we have to shift. And almost to say that having just heard the concerns and the constraints that diverse sections of the society have of, let's say, certain investment, a certain project, isn't just enough. You need to give them seat at the table. They need to be part of that decision making. So I think it's more about accepting that there is so much that you can learn by listening to people of diverse backgrounds. And they've got experiences, they've got their own agendas, which can be helpful in coming up with a solution, a product or a service that would be much more equitable, much more acceptable to a diverse future that comes with it is what I would say is the main kind of shift that needs to happen in our thinking. Yes. Moving on, the sustainability landscape is fast evolving. What, according to you, are going to be some of the biggest opportunities in the future? Numerous, numerous. So I think very interestingly, some of the challenges that have been solved in parts of the world are completely unheard of in other parts. And even within the three segments that I talked about that STEER has offers in zero emission vehicles, net zero and decentralized energy, incentive schemes, subsidy schemes that are becoming very successful in one part of the world are completely unheard of in the other parts of the world. And then within the sectors, certain mechanisms which have initiated commercial deployment of large-scale capital in solar, rooftop solar, for example, haven't even been tried in areas like two-wheeler electrification or bus electrification. So, and there are complete similarities. And the same story pans itself when you look at sustainable aviation fuels, what the UK government is trying to do of a mechanism called CFD, which is going to be the big carrot contract for difference to be able to produce volumes of sustainable aviation fuel, which they are looking to mandate over the next three, four years to become part of the aviation decarbonization strategy. And every other government is looking at it, including India, North America, Europe, is a mechanism that has existed in the renewable sector for years. So there is so much learnings from different yeah. sectors. So the opportunity really is to drop your boundary walls and look over the fence and actually start seeing, oh, actually, I can learn so much from somebody that has been working in the energy sector in my transport space, or I can offer something in my transport space into the net zero community impact because I've actually gone and talked to all the communities about their experience of using this bus system. Now, let me talk to them about using this new form of heating or cooling that they are trying. So there's lots of that synergy where applying our same skill sets in a new area will become the name of the game is how I see it. Very insightful, Sarbjit. It's not always about new innovations. It's not always about thinking about new ways in which you can do things. But it is thinking about existing practices that are probably successful and have been tried and tested. And there has been no cross-sectoral pollination or even synergies to see how you could exploit those opportunities. We're the last question. So is it a profit versus sustainability thing or is it possible to have both? Because a, you run a business, right? Absolutely possible to have both. Has to be possible to have both. Because without that, a sustainable business is a profitable business. So both those things go hand in hand. And it's not about sacrifices. It's not just about kind of letting go of good things that you had. It's about, as I said, decoupling your own growth with your carbon impact growth. That's fundamentally how I see what it is or yeah. emission impact. Yeah, because I believe, I mean, a lot of people have spoken about this, but I also believe that people don't want to change 
change from what they've been doing for the last 20, 30, 50 years, because it's working. It seems to be working. And change is very difficult. And they worry whether they will be able to make money from that change. I think essentially a lot of our work or business has been directly connected to the monetary game. Yeah. And I think for lack of a better simile, there will always be dinosaurs and cockroaches. So even though cockroaches are seen as sort of these nasty beasts that infest our kitchens and houses, they have survived for billions of years. Whereas one impact of one, whatever you want to believe, climate impact or an asteroid impact wiped out the dinosaurs, even though they existed for 200 million years. And that's exactly what was the difference between dinosaurs and cockroaches, that they were able to adapt to all sorts of worlds, no matter how harsh or how kind of generous they were, adapting to change and therefore thriving in that change has got to be the motto of the sustainability transition. Yeah, adapting and thriving. I think that's a good way to end our conversation. But I still have one more to ask you. How would you end the sentence, I believe in? Change. (laughs) That's wonderful. Thank you so much. For your time and this has been a very very insightful conversation and i'm sure my audiences will love getting a better understanding because a lot of what you have explained and spoken about has been very relatable it's not in a language that is exclusionary so thank you very much for that no thank you for having me it was lovely chatting with you Thank you for joining us this week on the Elephant in the Room podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on any of your favorite platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And if you enjoyed listening to the podcast today, don't forget to write a review and tell your friends. Sign up on the link in the show notes to receive updates on our guest speakers, blogs and events. And don't forget to tune in every Thursday for new episodes.